True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The two friends laugh and chat as they say their goodbyes. They plan to head straight home and get some sleep, but another group of men nearby have other plans for them. By morning, the pair will be caught up in a web of violence and horror, from which they have little chance of escaping. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 90, The Murder of Brett Golding and Richard Bloom. This episode is sponsored by CBS Justice. Our case today deals with two hapless victims whose nights of fun ended with their murders by the time the sun came up. For more true crime, watch the premiere of Murdered by Morning Season 1 on CBS Justice every weeknight from Monday the 5th to Friday the 16th of September as standalone episodes shine a light on crimes taking place under the cover of darkness. Riveting, chilling and unexpected, don't miss Murdered by Morning at 7pm on DSTV Channel 170. A huge thank you to CBS Justice for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Mzipofo, Madeleine van Royen, Bren, Penny Lancaster, Luzal Raycott, Nicole Nokia, Nastasha Zili, Venetia van Vieren, and Charlene Nordia for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. In addition to the shout-out and monthly exclusive episode that Patreons get, I also now upload an ad-free version of every week's episode to Patreon. So if you prefer not to hear the ads, head over to Patreon and sign up for a minimum monthly contribution of just $1, which at the moment is about 16 rand. It's a pretty good deal. If you like discounts, because who doesn't, head over to King Online for your health and beauty needs, Print Crowd for all your printing requirements and use the code TCSA10 at checkout for 10% discount and support the show at the same time. And you can also get 10% off when you order from Wallpaper Online by using the code TRUECRIME at checkout. Other forms of support that make a huge difference include following the show on social media, inviting your friends, family, postman, hairdresser and parole officer to listen and leaving reviews on the podcast platform you use. Today's case received a huge amount of press coverage at the time that it happened, predominantly because one of the victims was quite a well-known local actor, but also because the brutality of the crime shocked South Africa. I've chosen to cover this case despite it already having received quite a bit of coverage, because I feel like a lot of the coverage so far focused on the perpetrators, their backgrounds and motives, 
and I think a closer look at the victims is warranted. My sources for this episode include several media articles and other news coverage about the case. So let's get into episode 90, The Murders of Brett Golden and Richard Bloom. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Richard Bloom and his twin brother Derek were born on the 23rd of July 1978 to their parents, Tony and Sandy. Richard's creativity stood out early in his childhood, and with his excellent people skills, when he matriculated he decided to study at the AAA School of Advertising in Bryanston. Richard had met Brett Golding when they were teenagers, and the two young men remained best friends throughout their lives. With many similarities between the two, including their Jewish heritage, the fact that they were both members of the LGBTQ community, and both engaged in creative careers, their friendship seemed a no-brainer. Brett Golden, having been born on the 21st of October 1977, was almost a year older than Richard. His parents, Denise and Peter, also had a daughter, Brett's sister, Samantha. Brett had displayed his love for performing as an actor at a very early age, and by the age of 11, he was already securing parts in films and ads. He attended King David's School and then Crawford College for his high school years. As much as Brett loved performing, he had an equal passion for scriptwriting. So when he matriculated in 1996, he decided he wanted to study in English and drama at the University of Cape Town. So from 1997 to 2000, he studied a bachelor's degree, majoring in those subjects. After graduating, he went on to complete a performer's diploma in speech and drama at the same university. His professors would later say that, quote, Golden was the kind of individual who makes teaching a truly worthwhile, fulfilling and enriching experience. From his audition, it was clear that we were dealing with a unique and special performer who harboured an innate and singular talent, a talent that becomes a pleasure to nurture and draw out. End quote. While Brett spread his wings in Cape Town, his best friend Richard would also soon be headed for the mother city. Richard had secured a job at May's Clothing, where he would be managing a clothing label called X and O. Richard's colleagues described him as an extremely talented designer who had a very bright future in the fashion industry. And it wasn't just Richard's work life that was blooming in the shadow of Table Mountain. He had met clinical psychologist Brian Helland while he was there, and the two had quickly become close and started a relationship. While Richard worked on his career and relationship, Brett Golden's star was quickly rising. In 2002, he starred in the horror film Slash and the series Cave Girl. In 2003, he acted in two movies, Proteus and Adrenaline, and the television series Citizen Verdict. In 2004, 
He appeared in three different television series, as well as the movie Blast. In that same year, the first stage production that Brett had written was performed in Cape Town. He acted in the play too, which was about a Columbine-style high school shooting taking place at a Johannesburg school. By 2005, he was creating content for MTV with three of his friends under the label Crazy Monkey. The clips created under this label would eventually be compiled into a movie in that year called Crazy Monkey the Movie Straight Outta Benoni. Both Brett and Richard's parents remained in Johannesburg, and with friends and work opportunities in both provinces, both men would often travel between Gauteng and the Western Cape. In April of 2006, Richard Bloom was preparing for the annual highlights of his career with May's Clothing. Fashion Week was an opportunity for young designers to showcase their pieces, and Richard was looking forward to seeing his label, X and O, take the runway. On a personal note, he was struggling with the fact that his twin brother, Derek, had just immigrated to Australia. He was closely bonded with his brother and was finding it difficult to navigate life, knowing that he was so far away. For Brett, April of 2006 was also a milestone month. He'd recently been chosen to play the role of Guildenstern in Janet Sussman's recreation of Shakespeare's Hamlet. The show was starting its run in Cape Town at the Baxter Theatre on the 15th of April, and there were two more performances scheduled for the Mother City before it went international, and that was what Brett was really excited about. Sussman's Hamlet would be running at a theatre in Stratford-upon-Avon in the United Kingdom, the village in which Shakespeare himself was born. For Brett, this was the opportunity of a lifetime to immerse himself in the craft he loved so much. His parents, Denise and Peter, had arranged to fly down to see their son's Cape Town shows and to say goodbye before he left for the UK for that run of the show in late April. Brett was to premiere in the matinee of Hamlet on the afternoon of the 15th of April, and he'd arranged to meet his mother for dinner that evening after the show. Brett and his mom Denise ate together, and later in the evening, Richard Bloom joined them for a drink. Around 11pm, Brett and Richard said that they were going to be heading over to a friend's house in Camps Bay for a bit. Mother and son said their goodbyes and arranged to meet for lunch the next day at the Winchester Hotel. Denise could have no idea that this would be the last time she would see her son alive. Richard and Brett drove in separate cars to Camps Bay that night. They arrived at Richard's colleague, designer Craig Port's house just after 11pm. As is often the case with the narrow streets of Camps Bay, Parking was scarce, and the two men had to park quite some distance from Port's home. With parking secured, they made their way inside and relaxed with their friends. A few kilometres away that night, in the city centre of Cape Town, another get-together of sorts was happening. Siobhan Marley, 25, Clinton Davids, 23, Jade Vainkart, 19, and Nurshad David, 18, 
were having what for them was a typical Saturday night. They'd been drinking long before they arrived at the pubs and clubs of the city centre, but there they'd been able to score drugs too, so by 11.30pm all four men were on the sidewalk, huddled around Siobhan Marley's BMW, discussing what they wanted to do for the rest of the evening. For the four young men, whose day-to-day lives often involved crime, the ideas they came up with weren't what most young people would be discussing. Although it would never be proven, there were allegations of some level of street gang involvement with some of the men in the group. These men were not strangers to violence. Two of them, Vankart and Marley, were carrying 9mm semi-automatics. As they huddled around the BMW, they decided that the rest of the night would be spent looking for a car to steal. They needed cash, and they knew guys that would take the right cars without questioning, have them stripped down in minutes, and the owners would never know where they'd gone. As they stood in the city centre street, there were two options for decent vehicles. They could head down the N1 and into Pardon Eilant, and then take the R27 into Bloberg Strand, but that was much further and in the opposite direction of their usual stomping grounds. The other option, to head up the hill and toward the affluent suburb of Camps Bay, it was far preferable. After all, the young men knew that people there often parked their cars on the street when they were visiting friends or dining at restaurants. It should be pretty easy to find a saleable car there, they thought. And so they set off, all piled into the BMW, their alcohol levels peaked and drugs coursing through their veins. As the BMW was barreling toward Camps Bay, Richard and Brett were getting ready to say goodnight to their friends. In Craig Port's home, Brett was receiving a final set of congratulations from the party attendees about his big upcoming UK premiere. Exciting times lay ahead, but for now, sleep was on the cards, and Port recalls the two men specifically saying that they were each headed straight home. Port last saw the men as he greeted them at the door, briefly watched as they headed out the gate, and disappeared into the darkness of the Camps Bay street. The group of four men slowed the BMW as they entered Camps Bay. They didn't need a traffic camera recording their presence there, and they wanted to keep an eye out for just the right car. On Victoria Road, they spotted two well-dressed young men, and decided to see where they were headed. Stealing a car by breaking into it and hot-wiring or jimmying the ignition was easy enough, but if you could get the key from the owner, you wouldn't have to damage anything, and that would mean more money for them. Richard and Brett chatted as they walked. It would likely be the last time the friends would see each other before Brett went to the UK for a while, so they were enjoying each other's company for those last few moments. Richard was grateful that Brett's trip was not a permanent one like his brother's. The two young men were probably not paying much attention to the road. 
they would fairly assume that any passing car was just a resident headed home or someone leaving one of Camps Bay's many restaurants. When the BMW carrying four men eased into a parking spot a few spaces behind their cars, they might not have immediately been alarmed. As the BMW came to a stop, Clinton Davids issued his instructions. They were going to rob the two men on the sidewalk. Richard was already leaning against his car, and the grey Volkswagen Polo was highly sought after. It would be the perfect take for the night. Within seconds, the pack was upon the two unsuspecting men. Clinton David's aggressive and hissing instructions pointed his gun at Richard and Brett. They didn't need a fuss to attract attention, so the two men were immediately ordered to keep quiet and comply. In shock, Brett and Richard exchanged glances as the men started patting them down, taking their wallets, cell phones and car keys. The group of men would later say that they'd taken Richard and Brett with them, because if they'd left them behind, they would raise the alarm too soon, and Camps Bay police would be on their tails. To prevent this, they claimed they planned to take the men somewhere where it would take some time to get help, just enough time for them to get far away from Camps Bay. Richard and Brett were ordered into the BMW with two of the men. The other two got into Richard's car and started driving. The BMW, driven by Marley, led the way up the winding road which would lead to the Table Mountain cable car station. Some distance from the cable cars, the men pulled over onto a grassy verge. They ordered Richard and Brett out of the vehicle, and Clinton Davids told them to get undressed. This act would later be questioned. Many would believe it was done purely to humiliate the victims, but the perpetrators claimed they'd had a far more practical motive. Naked and barefoot, the men would take far longer to reach help. They may even hesitate to flag someone down if they were naked. Van Cart and Clinton Davids then decided to use some cable they had in the boots of the BMW to tie the men's hands. Vancart was holding his gun and cell phone, and as he fumbled to put the gun away so he could bind the men, his cell phone started ringing. Distracted, he fired his weapon. Vancart handed his weapon to Davids, who pocketed it, and started tying up Brett and Richard. The others were now seriously concerned that someone may have heard the gunshot and called police so they quickly ordered Brett and Richard into the boots of Richard's polo, and both cars left the scene. The men now headed toward the Cape Flats, where they would be able to deliver the car to the chop shop, but they needed to do something about the two men in the boot first. On the M5 freeway, both cars pulled over onto a grassy area near an off-ramp. The soft ground sucked the polo's wheels in, though, and it became stuck. Richard and Brett were ordered out of the boots to help push the car, but they were unable to dislodge it from the thick mud. Clinton Davids then told the two men to lie face down on the ground. He broke a parcel shelf off the polo and lodged it under the wheels to try and get the vehicle out. He handed his gun to Javon Marley and told him that if the men moved or made a sound, he should shoot them. 
whether he actually meant this or was just saying it to scare Richard and Brett into complying is unknown, but his instruction would duly be followed by Molly. The perpetrators couldn't say whether it had been Brett or Richard who had suddenly, desperately screamed out into the night for help at that moment, but it would not matter who it was. Siobhan Marley acted immediately. He fired two shots into the back of each man's head, killing both instantly. The group of men did not skip a beat. They managed to dislodge the car wheels from the mud and quickly fled in the BMW and Polo, leaving their victims naked and deceased on the side of the freeway. Three of the men got into the BMW and one into Richard's Polo. The Polo would be driven to a chop shop where other men would unwittingly be drawn into the case. They knew the car had been stolen, certainly, but no mention was made that its owner and his friend had also just been murdered. Richard and Brett's cell phones went with the car to be sold on to make more money. Their wallets had been rifled through and Brett's credit card was slipped into the jacket of one of the men. They hoped it could be swiped without a pin code needing to be used. While Richard's car was taken deep into the Cape Flats, Marley and his BMW with two of the other men decided to return to Camps Bay. It seemed a foolish and arrogant thing to do, and it's highly likely that greed played into it too. They could have just returned home, and there's a high likelihood they would never have been tied to the murders. But Marley, with the blood of two already on his hands, decided he hadn't had enough, and it would be his undoing. In the early hours of Sunday the 16th of April, two patrolling Camps Bay police officers noticed the BMW driving erratically in the area. The officers pulled the vehicle over and ordered the three occupants out. They searched them and found a credit card in the name of B. Golden. None of the men in the vehicle were named B. Golden, and no one could explain where the card had come from, so the three men were arrested on suspicion of theft and taken to Camps Bay Police Station. While one detective questioned the three men, another attempted to figure out who B. Golden was and why his credit card was in the possession of three strangers. At this point, police were working on the assumption that this had been a simple mugging, pickpocketing, or maybe the man's wallet had been stolen out of his vehicle. They would find the man, clarify that he had not intended these three men to be in possession of his card, and then they could discuss charges. As dawn broke, detectives attempted to trace the owner of the credit card while the three men were held for further questioning. At 10am that morning, Denise Golding's cell phone rang. It was the fraud division of her son's bank. They informed the stunned woman that Brett's credit card had been found in the possession of a trio of men with criminal records. They wanted to know whether she had seen or heard from Brett. She told the bank employee that she'd last seen him the night before, and when she tried his cell phone from her husband's phone while the employee held, her stomach tightened when he didn't answer. 
The bank employee thanked her and told her that Camps Bay Police would be in touch with her. Sure enough, a few minutes later, her cell phone rang. It was one of the officers who'd arrested the three men the night before. In a surreal conversation, Denise Golding opened a missing persons case on the advice of the officer. This would help them to activate resources to help find her son. She also informed the officer that her son had left with Richard Bloom the night before, and they'd been going to Camps Bay together. As the call ended, the mother could not believe what was happening. She held on to the hope, though, that perhaps her son had simply been the victim of a mugging. Maybe the men had taken his wallet and his cell phone too, and that was why she couldn't reach him. Their lunch appointment loomed at 11am that morning. Denise decided to go, hoping that her son would arrive and explain everything. She arrived at the Winchester Hotel and sat at a table for two. 11am came and went with no sign of Brett. She kept her eyes trained on the entrance to the restaurant. Each time someone entered, her heart leapt, and she craned her neck to see if it was Brett. Each time she was disappointed. By 11.15, Denise Golding says that a cold feeling came over her. Her ordinarily punctual son would not have left her sitting there. She knew something was very, very wrong. By this time, Richard Bloom's family and friends were also becoming concerned. The puzzle pieces of the previous night started to fall into place, and it became clear that if Brett was missing and his card was in the possession of a band of thugs, that did not bode well for Richard either, as the last sighting of the men had been by Craig Port, together, outside his home in Camps Bay. Sunday the 16th ticked by painfully slowly for the friends and family of Brett and Richard. Hamlet was due to be performed again on Monday the 17th, but with no sign of Brett, the show was postponed. With information being fed back to the officers questioning the three men, the intensity and urgency of the interview increased. Eventually, in the early hours of Monday the 17th of April, one of them broke, and that was all detectives needed. Detectives' hearts sank as the men described the events of the early hours of Sunday morning. The officer who'd spoken with Denise Golding knew that he was going to have to call her back and change her life forever. Later that day, police were directed by the men to the M5 freeway. There, on a grassy patch, they found the bodies of Richard Bloom and Brett Golding. The area was taped off and officially declared a crime scene. Forensics photographers captured images of the men's bodies, the tire tracks, and carefully combed the scene for evidence. They found the murder weapon discarded in nearby bushes. It had been wiped down for fingerprints before being tossed there. Police photographers were not the only ones at the scene, though. As news filtered out to the press, news photographers arrived too. Although they were kept at a distance, one over-eager photographer managed to get pictures of the two victims' bodies before they were covered. Shockingly, the Daily Voice would publish these photographs of Richard and Brett's 
naked, bound bodies on the fronts of their newspaper. The publication would later be hauled over the coals by the press ombudsman for crossing the line of decency and compassion in reporting. They were forced to issue a public apology for their actions. Not wanting the family to hear about the discovery from the media, Camps Bay Police made contact with Denise and Peter Golding and Sandy and Tony Bloom to advise them of the horrifying news. Although formal identifications would be necessary, it seemed clear that their sons had been murdered. A wave of shock spread through the fashion, theatre and film industries in South Africa, and as is the case in the early hours of any news of this sort, facts were scarce and speculation was rife. Just three years before, the LGBTQ community and South Africa as a whole had been horrified by the vicious mass murder of nine gay men and the attempted murder of another in Seapoint. The similarities in the stagings of the crimes were clear. The men in Seapoint had also been bound and forced to lay flat on the ground before being shot in the head execution style. Those victims' throats had also been slashed, and although the crime had not officially been deemed a hate crime, many still believe the perpetrators in that case specifically targeted the Sizzler's massage parlour because it was a gay venue. So when news broke about Richard and Brett's murders and the nature of their deaths was revealed, the LGBTQ community could not help but wonder if the pair had been victims of a hate crime. The men involved in the murders would deny that they had ever known Brett and Richard were gay, and eventually it would be accepted that this had been nothing more than a random, wrong place, wrong time situation. In the days after the murders, Richard Bloom's twin brother Derek, who'd just immigrated to Australia, returned to South Africa. His parents could not bring themselves to travel to Cape Town, and they wanted Richard's body sent back to Johannesburg as soon as his autopsy was completed. Brett's sister Samantha flew in from Johannesburg to be with her parents too. In the early days of the investigation, a total of 11 people would be arrested in connection with Brett and Richard's murders. Six would eventually remain to receive charges, the four men who'd been present that night, and another two, Zubar Davids and Yazid Aysin, who'd been found in possession of Richard's car and the men's cell phones. Thankfully for the families, the proceedings against the six men moved quickly. It soon became clear that the youngest two of the four men who'd been present that night would be willing to turn state's witness. Plea bargains were negotiated and presented to the families for their agreement. The terms of the agreement meant that 19-year-old Jade Vainkart and 18-year-old Nushad David would plead guilty to robbery with extenuating circumstances, kidnapping, the possession of a firearm and ammunition, and the possession of a dangerous weapon. They would also have to agree to testify against the other two main accused, Clinton Davids and Siobhan Marley. These two men were being charged with the murders, as it emerged that Davids had been instrumental in masterminding the robbery 
and giving instructions to shoot the men if they moved or called out. Marley, of course, had been the trigger man. In return for their cooperation, Vainkart and Nurshad David would be sentenced to 15 years' imprisonment, of which three years were suspended for five years. Zubair Davids and Yasid Asin, who had received the stolen car and cell phones, also entered into a plea bargain with the state to testify about their interactions with the murderers that night. These two men would be sentenced to two years in jail each on the charges of vehicle theft and the possession of stolen goods and an unlicensed gun and ammunition. The plea bargains for the aforementioned four men also involved them being required to give detailed statements about what had occurred that night. Those statements were read into the record by the state prosecutor, and the true picture of horror emerged. Although Brett and Richard's moments of death had been quick and relatively painless, it was the fear, humiliation and horror they must have experienced in the hours before their deaths that really devastated their families and friends. As the families waited for the final two murderers to face justice, Richard Bloom's colleague Craig Port and his partner Brian Helland decided to create something positive out of all the pain. At a fashion show in August 2006, the pair announced the creation of a non-profit organisation called the Richard Bloom Foundation. The foundation would help to fund the growth of upcoming designers so that each year, although the man himself would never attend another event, his memory would live on and help to build the industry he'd loved so much. Eventually, in May 2007, Clinton Davids and Siobhan Marley, who, from the evidence available, were clearly the most culpable of the four men present that night, announced that they would be pleading guilty to the murders. The evidence against them was insurmountable, and with four of their fellow criminals prepared to testify against them, there was no way the men were going to escape justice, and they knew it. Both men entered guilty pleas to charges of murder, kidnapping, robbery with aggravated circumstances, illegal possession of a gun and ammunition, and possessing a dangerous weapon. In return for their guilty pleas, and to avoid putting the families through a drawn-out trial, the states agreed not to request more than 28 years in prison for each man. Judge John Chlope, in accepting the guilty pleas, passed down this very sentence. After the proceedings, Denise Golden spoke to the media and said that she was just grateful that it was over and that their families could now try to grieve and come to terms with their immense losses. She applauded and thanked the police and prosecutors for their hard work and the support that they had given to their family since Brett's murder. The woman's life had been turned upside down in the months after her son's death. Just three months after she'd sat in the restaurant, hoping beyond hope that her son's handsome, beaming face would appear, Denise had been diagnosed with breast cancer. Despite the enormous emotional pressure she was already under, Denise was able to beat the cancer with treatment. Her husband Peter, though, would not survive to see his son's two murderers sentenced. Denise described how Peter had tried so hard to be strong for her and her daughter. 
he'd put up a brave front, but on many occasions she'd woken in the middle of the night to the sounds of his muffled sobs in the house. He would get up and go to the room Brett would sleep in when he visited, lay on the floor clutching an item that belonged to his son, and cry. In January 2007, Peter Golding was swimming at the gym when his broken heart failed him permanently. He experienced cardiac arrest and could not be resuscitated. Denise would spend the months after her son and husband's deaths flying to Cape Town regularly to pack up Brett's flat and attend the ongoing court hearings. She lived in Brett's flat while she was there and visited his favourite coffee shop to feel closer to him. She drove the same road that the killers took that night from Camps Bay to the M5 and then pulled over and lay down in the spot where her son's body had been found. Denise started working with a community organisation in Manenberg, which works to help children avoid the pitfalls of the environment they live in. She saw firsthand how gangs, drugs and alcohol wormed their way so insidiously into these children's lives. But she could not bring herself to think about her son's killers as once having been those children. The stretch seemed a bridge too far. There's a saying in the theatre world that the show must go on, and director Janet Sussman, after discussion with the rest of the cast, decided that Brett would have wanted just that for the Hamlet performance. The play premiered in the UK, with Brett's understudy filling his role, and each performance began with a dedication to their fallen colleague. To further ensure that Brett was never forgotten and his love for acting lived on in others, the Royal Shakespeare Company set up the Brett Golding Bursary Fund. It was kick-started by donations from Janet Sussman and Sir Anthony Sher. Sher was a South African-born actor and director who'd seen huge success internationally in theatre and film productions. He would also go on to produce a documentary about Brett and Richard's murders called Murder Most Foul, which exposed the dark underbelly of crime in the Western Cape. The Brett Golding Bursary Fund would finance the studies of 11 up-and-coming South African actors before coming to a close in 2016. In 2008, Richard Bloom's partner, Brian Helland, wrote a book about his life with Richard and his grief journey. Soul Conductor, a journey of grieving and healing, details their relationship, the horror of Richard's death, and the wild and difficult grief journey Helen found himself on in the ensuing years. In 2010, Sandy Bloom passed away from a brain tumour. Helen, who was very close with his late partner's mother, felt sure that the emotional devastation she'd been through in the prior four years had contributed to her illness. Just 19 months after Sandy's death, the Bloom and Golding families were informed that Vanhart and Nishard David, who'd taken the initial plea deals, had become eligible for parole. Their 12-year effective sentences meant that they would be eligible for parole halfway through that time. Many of the family members would make oral submissions appealing against parole for the pair. At the very least, 
they wanted the men to serve the bulk of the sentences they'd been given. The men were declined parole at that hearing, but in 2014 they became eligible again, and with just four years left of their mandated sentences, they were granted parole. In 2016, to mark the 10-year anniversary of Richard and Brett's deaths, some of their friends and family members gathered at the place where they died. Elton John's candle in the wind was played, and flowers were placed in the spot where their bodies had been found. Brian Helland read a passage from his book, and a friend of Brett's described him as the most positive person he'd ever known. Then a moment of silence was observed as the wind rustled through the grass and cars on the freeway hummed in the distance. Clinton Davids and Siobhan Marley would have been eligible for parole in 2021. I cannot find any mention of the two men having attended a parole hearing, but in 2035 they will have served their full sentences and must be released. Brett's sister Samantha went on to marry and have children, but she says that no matter how much time passes, whenever she drives past an off-ramp with a grassy area next to it, she cannot help but picture her brother and Richard's last moments. Every year on Brett's birthday, the family celebrates with his two favourite things, pizza and red wine. Brian Helland, who has since met a new partner and had two children through a surrogate, still remembers Richard every year on his birthday too. Although the young man would never age past 27, his family still think about all that could have been on the day that he was born, each year. This crime could really not have been more random or pointless. Although the perpetrators claimed they'd initially not intended to kill Richard and Brett, they very clearly had little hesitation in doing so when it came down to it. I'm familiar with the area where Brett and Richard were killed, and even though one of them allegedly called out for help, the men were at very little risk of being caught out because of it. There was no reason to kill them. But drunk, high and so completely in tune with using violence to solve their problems. Those four gunshots seemed like the easiest thing Siobhan Marley had ever done. I'd like to point out here that we only have the testimony of those four men to rely on about what happened that night. They say that the gunshots came after one man called out for help. But Denise Golding would later say, that the version provided in court was sanitised, and the evidence from the scene did not indicate that the two victims were doing anything other than complying with instructions given to them when they were killed. One of the many documentaries produced about these murders in the ensuing years was titled When Two Worlds Collide, and that really did become the prevailing theme around this crime. Six young men were out and about in Cape Town that night. Two came from backgrounds the other four could never dream of. Brett and Richard had grasped every opportunity that had been presented to them in their lives and were looking forward to all the future held. The other four 
came from a background filled with substance abuse and violence. They too were adept at grasping opportunities, just in a very different way. The irony here, though, is that none of that mattered when it came down to it. Brett and Richard weren't targeted because of who they were as people. They were targeted because they owned material possessions that those four men wanted. In so many of these cases that I look at, there was a point of no return. A moment of before and after, where just one decision could have changed so much. For the four men that night, that moment seemingly came when Clinton Davids handed his gun to Siobhan Marley and uttered those fateful words. If they move or make a sound, shoot them. It would have been so easy for the men to just get the car out of the mud and drive away that night. If they'd been smart enough about covering their tracks, they may never have even been identified. But instead, they took it to the next level. And as a result, many, many lives have never been the same. Richard Bloom was 27 years old and just at the beginning of a phenomenal career and a love story that clearly deeply impacted his partner Brian's life. He was deeply loved by his friends and family and respected by those who worked with him. He deserved the opportunity to see what else the world held for him, what beauty he could create, and how much love he could experience. Brett Golding was just 28 years old. His star was rising, and after he appeared in the UK, the world would quite literally have been his oyster. He could have gone anywhere, done anything. He may have met and fallen in love with someone. But thanks to the actions of four men on that night, we will never know what might have been. Instead, Brett and Richard have become faces and names well known for how their lives ended, rather than how their lives were lived. But there are still people in the world who remember the real Brett and Richard. The human beings, the brothers, the sons that they were. And to those people, their faces are not just ones they've seen in an article somewhere. To those people, their faces are reminders that sometimes life is far shorter than it should be. Brett Golden, Richard Bloom, rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 90. The Murders of Brett Golden and Richard Bloom. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Lived Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support. 
and I'll chat to you soon.